Thank you for joining us for our Renewal City Church podcast. If you're looking for ways to get involved, join us on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. at the Roxy Theater in Longview. Or find us online at rcclongview.org. We hope you're blessed and that this message finds you well. You know how five minutes for the teaching because I took 20. Yeah. No, that's all right. Uh, a couple of things. One, I do like to think, and I tell myself this often, that every Sunday is Sunday fun day in here, right? I mean, I know, I know you could be out there playing board games with teenagers, but hearing the word of the Lord from a, a dynamic and knowledgeable speaker is, that's as good as it gets, at least for my Sunday morning. Um, and then the other one is I want, we are going to finish John chapter eight today. Uh, this has been our fifth week in the chapter and, uh, it was split through Easter. So really we started in John eight, I don't know, back in maybe February. So it has been a long time. Uh, this is a long chapter. There's been lots of, of dialogue and I know I myself am feeling like this is quite an accomplishment getting through it and really looking forward to being done. So one of the things that came to mind as I was considering this week is that, you know, some people might be here today and be like, I had no idea we were in John chapter 8 because you haven't ever been here before, or maybe you haven't been here in several weeks. Um, and, and one of the difficult things about the gospel of John is it, it's a gospel that has less stories in it, but those stories tend to be a lot longer uh, less chapters in it, but the chapters tend to be a lot longer. And so I imagine that some of you, at times, you show up the two, well, 1.8 times a month that you come to church, and you surprise, you're like, man, I feel like I'm just jumping into the middle of a scene here. I, I never know what's going on. It's a little bit how my wife and I will watch movies. Uh, my wife is notorious for falling asleep during movies, and so we watch movies in little tiny pieces. And as soon as I, I notice that she's sleeping, I stop the movie and I go to bed. And, and, then, when then, and then we come back and it's trying to find the point where she fell asleep. What does she remember from the movie? And if it's not a very memorable movie, this can be quite a chore. Anyhow, um, we, we watch movies and TV shows that way together. We'd started watching a TV show and, and uh, we were firing it up the other night. And my son Brody was joining us to watch it. And, and we're in the middle of episode number two. And she's like, no, we're not in episode two. We've got to be further than that. And I was like, nope, we're, we're 20 minutes into episode two. We've been watching the show for two weeks, but we're 20 minutes into episode two. Um, anyhow, so, so for those of you who are finding yourselves entering this in the middle of the scene and you can't remember what happened last time because you fell asleep, uh, John chapter eight has been this super long scene. We're in the city of Jerusalem. Uh, it's... It's during one of the festivals, but honestly, we've been here so long, I can't even remember which festival it is. Um, and Jesus has been teaching the people and, and teaching about and, and revealing himself as the Messiah. Uh, he's gotten a lot of criticism. Uh, there's some hostility there. Uh, but really, he's inviting the Jewish people to, to embrace the reality of what God is doing in this moment in history in their midst. Uh, and he's being met with some really heavy resistance. Uh, he's, of course, claiming that, uh, sorry, skip two pages. Nope, skip three pages. 
And now this is, you know, when you tap the left side of the screen, it's supposed to go back, but sometimes it doesn't obey. Obey me. Go back. We're still moving forward. This is great. We're just getting, I'm digging the hole deeper and deeper. All right, there we go. He, he's claiming that he's God's anointed one, that he's the Messiah, that he's the deliverer who's been sent by God. He's the ruler who's going to oversee a kingdom of peace between God and humanity. This kingdom's going to last forever. And the Jews are hearing him making these claims, and they're divided. There are people who believe him. There are people who aren't so sure. And then there are people, the, the religious leaders and the people who have authority in the Jewish culture, there are people who are scheming behind the scenes looking for a way to kill him. They feel like what he is saying and these claims that he is making are so dangerous for society that they, they want to kill him. Um, we talked last week, uh, for those of you who are jumping in the middle, we talked last week about uh, this point that Jesus is making about those who are looking for a way to kill him. He makes the point that they are children of the devil, or in other words, that they are living in the legacy and the inheritance of the one who's been a liar from the very beginning, of the one who's a deceiver and a murderer from the very beginning. And and last week, the whole idea was, whose legacy are you living into? Whose children are you showing yourself to be? Uh, The one who's a murderer from the beginning or the one who's restoring all things? Anyhow, these are pretty heavy accusations. And so the Jews respond in verse 48. We're going to pick the story up today. John chapter 8, verse 48. The Jews hear this accusation from from Jesus that you're living as in the legacy of of the devil. And and they say to him, uh, as oftentimes we do if we're feeling uh, heavily accused, they turn right to the personal attacks. They say to him, aren't we right in saying that you're a Samaritan and that you're demon-possessed? Right to the personal attacks. And so, uh, number one, they're saying, you're not a true Jew. So the Jews were the, the couple of remnant tribes of Israel, uh, the tribe of Judah, and then those from other parts and other tribes who had stayed true to uh, the, the kingdom of David, the family of David. They, they'd stayed true to him. Uh, they're the ones who went to Babylon for exile and then came back. Now, there were a ton of the children of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, uh, really the children of Jacob, the 12 tribes of Israel. There were a whole bunch of tribes and, and people from those tribes who didn't end up in Babylon and then all come back together. Uh, a bunch of them ended up in Assyria. Some of them ended up just staying in the land. You know, the, the whole idea of conquering a territory and then exiling everybody. Usually it's not an exact science. There's leftovers, there's people, there's pockets, there's villages that get overlooked in that whole process. And so um, and so all of these other sort of remnant tribes of, of Israelites who hadn't ended up in Babylon and then coming back together, uh, they're the Samaritans. They intermarried with the people that had been brought in by the empires. They didn't necessarily stay true to all of the religious teachings of the law and all of that, all the traditions. They're the Samaritans. And there's a lot of hostility between the Jews and the Samaritans, so much so that the worst thing you could call a Jew was a Samaritan. And so they say to Jesus, you're not a true Jew. You're a Samaritan. You're one of the compromised people. You're an offspring of these children of Israel who had intermarried with the Canaanites, and they don't follow the right religion. They don't do the right things. They're the worst. They also say to him that you're demon-possessed. 
Now, this is a good point to, to bring up the idea that for ancient people, uh, they tend to think about things a little bit differently than we do. And, and especially when they consider the world around them and all of the things that are kind of these unseen powers that, that uh, act on the world around them, they saw personalities behind that. They saw living beings behind that. Uh, we live a, a little differently today. We have science, we have microscopes, we have psychology. And so we have come up with a lot of natural explanations for what is happening in the world around us that we maybe can't observe with the naked eye. Uh, but the, the ancient world was very, very different. Uh, where anything was happening that they didn't have an explanation for it, they saw person, spiritual personalities at work. I'm reminded of a, of a moment. Uh, we had a staff meeting several months ago, and the Alexi's youngest was there, and he observes a balloon floating in the air. And he's like six months old, and he freaks out at a helium balloon because I was marveling in, in, in two levels. One, like, yes, isn't it interesting how the primitive mind, the little baby mind, uh, sees something that, that doesn't look right and is terrified. You know, it's almost like there's this personality of evil behind it, right? He's terrified. He's scared. And the other thing that I thought was, isn't it amazing that a six-month-old grasps the idea of physics and gravity enough to be like, that thing's not obeying the rules. And so, um, anyhow, the ancient mind sees personalities behind all that, the stars in the sky, the elements of nature, and, and particularly when someone's behaving in, in like a crazy, unexplainable way, they saw demon. There's a demon behind that. This person's demon-possessed. Like I said, modern humanity, we tend to think of our world very differently. Uh, I think one reason that ancient people saw personalities behind everything that they saw is because they were relational thinkers. And so they saw people behind everything. They saw opportunities for relationship behind almost every phenomenon in the world around them, the seen and the unseen. Modern humanity tends to think about things more categorically. We don't think relationally. We don't see opportunities for relationship in the phenomenon that happen around us. We think more scientifically. We separate relationships out and people out from so many things. Uh, we believe that natural phenomenon happens simply because of the random interactions of the particles of our universe. You know, we believe that plants are just plants and stars are giant balls of burning gas and and then we diagnose those things that tend to happen, the, the unobservable but crazy things that tend to happen in the minds of people. We have all kinds of diagnoses for those things that maybe have to do with chemical imbalances and, and, and things like that. Um, we don't even necessarily think relationally about people who we're not in immediate relationship with. And this is actually a particularly dangerous part of how modern humanity thinks about the world, because if I'm not willing to think relationally about someone, there's a lot of potential for me to dehumanize or devalue them. When we think about historical characters, people who have died long before we lived, I, this is a great way to illustrate this point. Like, we don't think of them as people that we would have a relationship with. I mean, Theodore Roosevelt is a name on a test with facts about him that you need to remember if you want to be a good American student, but he's not somebody that we would ever know. He, he, and, and yet we know, if we really think about it, that Theodore Roosevelt was 
a real person with relationships, with family, with a life that was so much more than the job that he held for eight years. Um, But we can struggle to think of people that way. And that struggle often does allow us to to separate ourselves and, and to then dehumanize anyone who's on outside of that relational thinking. Uh, there's been a lot of talk in our community lately about the homeless problem. And, uh, and whatever ideas you might have about what a solution would be to that, if you know some homeless people in our community, I've got a dear friend, we used to run a college group at a church together. And he's been living homeless for about 10 years now. And I run into him in the alley behind the, just out here every now and then. A dear friend who's homeless. Like, you think about it differently when you know them, when you know their name. It doesn't necessarily mean that you, you know, I haven't, he hasn't spent the night at my house. But (laughs) you, you think about things differently when you begin to think about things relationally. And when you think about kids these days, you know, kids, Sunday fun day is a great example. Uh, For some of you, there's probably few things that would be more terrifying to you than going out in the cafe and playing board games with teenagers. But if you know some of those teenagers, you would know, oh, they're not that bad. Some of them can be pretty fun to hang out with. Sometimes you think differently. Of course, young people might be complaining about older people, but you get to know people. You have a relationship with someone, and you begin to think and operate in a relational uh, way of of uh, walking together, and, and it just changes things. I think one of the challenges that we have as modern followers of Jesus is to wrestle with these realities a little bit. I mean, we know that there's medical diagnosis and scientific and biological explanations for things in our world, and yet we also believe in an unseen God who has populated the universe with unseen personalities, powers and principalities, angels and demons, you know, archangels and whatever, whatever categories you want to put them in, you can see modern man thinks in categories, right? Like there's a whole bunch of people out there that we don't see. Uh, we've just finished up the book of Hebrews in, in our uh, men's Bible study we've been doing at midweek. And, and of course, the, the book of Hebrews uh, chapter 12 talks about this great cloud of witnesses speaking of all the people in the faith who have gone before this, before us and talking about them like a cloud of witnesses. You used to imagine if, if we were a cool church and we had a fog machine and we filled the room up with fog and you just imagine this cloud that we're in right now. There's a cloud of witnesses, those who have gone before th- for us in the faith, bearing witness to what we're doing, like a, a packed out Moda Center for a Blazers game. They're all there. I like to imagine they're cheering us on. They're like, and they're like perfect fans. They don't criticize the refs. They don't criticize the players. They just, they, if you did something wrong, they, you know you did something wrong. They know you did something wrong because they're watching. They see it all. Uh, but they're just cheering us on. Cloud of witnesses saying, keep running, keep going. Um, anyhow, uh, we have to wrestle with this reality that there are a host of unseen realities that we're just unaware of. And, and part of the challenge for us is to step into those realities and experience them. I really think that if we'll challenge ourselves to, to think more relationally, that that's one thing that will help us to, to connect with an unseen God. Uh, if you see God as someone who you worship on Sunday morning or someone that you believe in in your mind, uh, it can be tough to connect with the reality of God's presence throughout the week. But if you see God as your closest and dearest friend, 
and the one who cares deeply for you and knows you fully. You have no secrets from him. And he loves you and accepts you as you are. Um, then I think that becomes a bit of a doorway to stay connected with him and with these unseen realities all week long. Anyhow, that was the long way of getting there to verse 49. All right, we started verse 48. We're going to pick it up in verse 49. Uh, we're like 15 minutes into this in one verse, and this should go well. Uh, verse 49, so they say, you're, you're a Samaritan and you're demon-possessed. Jesus says, I'm not possessed by a demon, but I honor my Father, and now you're dishonoring me. I'm not seeking glory for myself, but there is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. I think about the reality, the relational reality that Jesus lived his life. And in this moment when he's receiving criticism from the people, he's turning it right back to his relationship with the Father. Look, you guys are throwing stones at me, but I am honoring the Father. He's with me. He's the one who testifies to who I am. He's the one who my confidence is in. He had this real sense that he wasn't sitting alone in the world, but there was an unseen partner who was infinitely for him, ready to, to, to glorify him. And, uh, and that this unseen partner, of course, is the one who has ultimate authority in, in our universe. He is the judge. He continues and says, Very truly, I tell you, whoever obeys my word will never see death. Think about that phrase, whoever obeys my word will never see death. And then I think about my own life and the obedient Christians who, at least from everything I could observe and see in their lives, they really seemed like they were people who were doing this, obeying Christ's word. How many of you have known people who were obedient and tasted death? They died. And in my own mind, and I think this will happen a lot to us if we just slow down a little bit when we're reading the scriptures, and, and I really hope you're taking time to read the scriptures. But don't think of it as checking a box. Think of it as, God, what do you have to say to me today? And these, th- these phrases get made, and you think for a minute, wait a minute. This is what it says in the scriptures. But my life experience isn't quite lining up with that. Of course, uh, if we're seeing evidence to the contrary of what we feel Christ is saying in scripture... I think for us, we have to realize then in that moment that he must be referring to something that's unseen, at least in that moment for us. It's not that his words have to be uh, not true or that my experiences have to be not true so much as, all right, this is highlighting in my mind something that I have to learn, something that I don't fully understand yet, something that as I look at the world is a little bit outside of my sight or a little bit beyond my comprehension. I think what Jesus is claiming for the people here is is he's beginning to refer to this unseen reality that humanity lives in. He's inviting them to believe in something that's beyond what they can see, to believe that this moment when you lay your loved one quietly in the grave, that that's not the end of humanity's story. That there's something more. That for those who believe in Jesus, they can begin to hope in something and they can begin to imagine something that goes beyond what is the normal seen human experience. This invitation that we have from the gospel uh, to believe in something that's beyond what we can see, to hope in something beyond what we've experienced, in my mind, this is one of the more compelling aspects of our faith. 
that your reality doesn't have to be defined by what you've seen or experienced, but there's something deeper and greater and grander and more good out there that God is inviting humanity to live in through the work of Jesus Christ. Continue on in verse 52. At this, they say, so Jesus just said, whoever believes in me will never taste death. At this, they exclaim, now we know that you're demon-possessed. Abraham died, and so did the prophets. And yet you're saying that whoever obeys your word is never going to taste death. They're thinking it too, right? Hey, the greatest people that we ever knew of, the, the most important people in our religion, they all died, and yet you're saying that they wouldn't die? How can you say this? They say, are you greater than our father Abraham? He died, and so did the prophets. Who do you think you are? I noticed they said something twice in that response. They said twice, Abraham died. Abraham died. Abraham died. I don't know if you're getting it, Jesus. Abraham, the greatest, the patriarch, the most important person in our history died. And so did the prophets. And yet here you are saying that whoever obeys your word, those who believe in you are never going to taste death. This pointed out uh, one cultural difference that we have between us and the people who are saying this to Jesus. And, and that's that in ancient cultures, the things that came before are always better than the new things. Fathers are always greater than their sons. Mothers are always greater than their children. The generations that came before are always seen as having more value, as having you know, greater wisdom, as being better than those, those things that come after. We live in an age where so much is pushing us towards newer is better, right? Anyone dissatisfied with the cell phone in their pocket because you know there's newer, better ones out there? Anyone a little dissatisfied with the car that you have to drive around because you know that there's newer and better ones out there? Anyone frustrated with someone who's maybe a little bit older and a little more backwards than your highly evolved self thinks? And you're thinking like, I can't believe where these people think they, they just need to get with the times. And although there's a touch of nostalgia in all of us, and there's things we can point to in the past, that we, oh, it was better then, or this or that, and we all kind of still suffer from, like, the good old day syndrome. You know, you, you tend to forget and push out of your mind the things that were hard. And so, yeah, when you look back on something that happened 20 years ago, you're like, that was so great. You forget that the kids cried the whole time, and it was miserable. Um, anyhow, uh, although we have all of that, we have something in our society that really pushes us towards newer is better. We think there's no one smarter. There are no humans smarter than the people living today, right? No one in ancient history, especially those who saw personalities behind all the natural phenomena in the world, they didn't know what they were talking about. The people who really know what they're talking about are the people living today who, who figured everything out. Um, this is not... This is not the, uh, the culture that uh, Scripture is written to. And, and I think really what this truth represents is this idea that we can often embrace is how wise we are in our own eyes. Now, of course, the idea that you would be wise in your own eyes was the, the false advertising that the serpent gave to Eve to get her to take the forbidden fruit. The promise was in the day that you take that fruit and eat it, your eyes are going to be opened 
You're going to see and understand the world around you just like God. And God's so threatened by that that he's holding out on you. The truth was that in the day that humanity reached out and grasped that opportunity to be able to define good and evil for themselves, that, set, they, yeah, they, their eyes were open. They were open to some new realities, one of those being fear, another one being shame. And, and the, the eyes being open to the realities of fear and shame ended up blinding them to the deep realities of who God is, his love for them, and what he's trying to do. I think in many ways the gospel exists for us today as an invitation to somehow look beyond the fear or the shame that's plagued humanity ever since we took the fruit and thought we're going to do this ourselves. The fear and the shame there to look beyond it and to be reconciled to the one who exists beyond all of that and, and is the one who can truly open our eyes to the things that matter. Anyhow, they're saying to Jesus, what are you talking about? Abraham's died. The greatest man who ever lived. Who do you think you are? You're comparing yourself to him. You're saying you're greater than him. Jesus replies to them and he says, if I glorify myself, my glory means nothing. My father, whom you claim as your God, is the one who glorifies me. Though you do not know him, I do know him. If I said I didn't know him, I'd be a liar just like all of you. But I do know him and I obey him. His word. And he says, your father Abraham rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day and he saw it and he was glad. Jesus is saying a couple of things right here. Number one, my father is your God. So if there's any confusion about who Jesus is claiming as his father throughout the gospels, it's cleared up here in this moment. My father is your God. The Yahweh of the Jewish people is my father. And then he says to them, and your father Abraham rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day. Abraham had received this promise from God. Of course, he's the one who we believe the story of Genesis is passed on down through and then recorded through Moses. But Abraham's the one who had this idea that God promised to Eve on the day that she ate the fruit. He promised to her that he would raise up one of her descendants, a son who would overcome this evil rebellion, the serpent's deception, and all the things that were sown in the Garden of Eden, he would overcome all of that. And Abraham believed God and believed that God was going to use him and one of his descendants, in descendants from Eve. He was going to use Abraham and one of his descendants to fulfill this thing, that his, he would have a son who would undo the curse. He would have a son who would take this world that had been cursed through man's disobedience and it would become blessed. The whole world would be blessed through a descendant of his. Jesus says, Abraham rejoiced at the thought of seeing that day. Someday, one of my descendants is going to come and, and the world's going to be blessed for him and everything's going to be fixed. It's going to be great. And then he says, he rejoiced at the thought of seeing that day. And then he says, and Abraham saw it. He saw the day that that happened and was glad. How did Abraham see this if he died about 2,000 years before Jesus was born. Well, I think we're beginning to tap into, well, it could be a couple of things. One, it, it could be that God had enabled him through a gift of prophecy or vision to somehow see through time forward. Or it could also be that we are surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses. 
humans who have gone before, who have believed in God and trusted him, and somehow are still there. Death isn't the end of their story. They're still there somehow, bearing witness to all of this. And, and perhaps Abraham saw Jesus the day he was born. I don't know exactly what point Jesus is referring to. And the people are confused as well. They say to Jesus, you're not 50 years old. How can you have seen Abraham? They're confused. They're doubtful. I think Jesus is claiming that in some, some kind of way he has seen Abraham. Abraham's seen him. It's like it's, you're acting like you know the guy. And we all know he died thousands of years ago. Verse 58, Jesus answers them and he says, Very truly, I tell you, before Abraham was born, I am. Those of you who have some familiarity with Scripture know that's like the mic drop moment, right? Why is it? Well, I am. I am is this cultural code word. When it's used this way, it means something significant. We have cultural code words. We understand that. Those of you who were born before 1965, if I say, hey, you got to watch out for the man, you know who the man is, right? The government. The man. Watch out for the man. If, if I say to a sports fan, Michael Jordan is the goat, you know what I mean by goat, right? No. No, right? He's the goat. If I say today something that would have had no meaning 10 years ago, but if I say today we're going to make America great again, we know that means that's more than just saying make America great again, right? It's a, it's a saying that carries all kinds of, of political alliances and, and, and weight in the world today. And so we understand cultural code words, right? We understand them. The phrase I am spoken in this way. You know, Jesus says before Abraham was, past tense, I am, present tense, ongoing, he says, before Abraham was, and he says, I am, and it's not followed with anything after that. The English majors are like, yeah, there was no predicate nominative in there. The other half of the sentence, I am what? I am thirsty. I am Jesus. I don't know. You know, he just says, I am. It's a cultural code word. You know, over a, a millennia and a half before Jesus is saying these words in Jerusalem, Moses, who was an exiled Hebrew descendant of Abraham, he's, he's a great grandchild, uh, a son of Levi. Uh, this guy Moses is talking to Yahweh on a mountain next to a burning bush. And God is telling Moses that he's chosen Moses to go into Egypt to deliver his people from the Pharaoh. And Moses is having some doubts about this whole mission, and he's uh, doubts about his ability to accomplish the mission and, and God's selection process. And at one point he's saying to him, look, if I'm going to go and tell all the people this, God, will you tell me your name? Because I'm going to go tell them I talked to God. And, and they're going, well, you talked to God? What's his name? You know, we've been wondering this. And, and God replies to Moses, and he says in the Hebrew, which is I am who I am, or I will be who I will be, or I, I am what I am. Uh, and, and the Hebrew scholars throughout history have felt that what God was communicating in that moment was his timeless preexistence to that moment of talking to Moses. What's your name? Look, I am who I am. I am who I've always been. I will be who I will always be. I'm a being who exists timelessly. 
Jesus, of course, is not speaking in Hebrew, but he speaks the Greek, ego eimi. And nothing is lost in translation for the people living in that day. You know, there's three times that Jesus says the phrase like that. One's when he's walking on water. That was a demonstration of his divinity, if nothing else is. One's right here when he's speaking to the crowd. The other time is when the soldiers come to arrest him in the garden. And they say, we're looking for Jesus of Nazareth. And he says, ego eimi. And John records it. It's a few chapters after this. We'll get to it, I don't know, in a year or two. And, um, and Jesus says, I am. And the soldiers fall back onto the ground at the sound of his words. And John says this happened so that he wouldn't lose a single of his disciples. That was Jesus' way of de-escalating the situation. Soldiers are coming, swords, torches, weapons are ready for a brawl. And then everyone's on the ground and they're getting up off the ground like, what is going on? And Jesus is like, I'll come peacefully. You can put the swords away. And then Peter kind of tries to mess that up. But anyhow, Jesus fixes it all. Um, nothing is lost in translation. He says, before Abraham was even born, I am. You are. You are what? Please fill in the blanks for us. He's like, I am the one who made the covenant with Abraham. I'm the one who spoke the universe into existence. I'm the one who spoke from the burning bush to Moses. I'm the one who is the eternal pre-existent one who has now come in this moment, clothed myself in flesh and humbled myself down to your level that you might see and know and walk in relationship with the one who I am, who I am. The people do fill in the blanks. Jesus says, before Abraham was, I am. Verse 59 says, at this, they picked up stones to stone him. This is a moment that there's a real change. There's a change in the crowd. There's no more scheming and slyness and behind the scenes. We're not so sure about this guy. We're not so sure about what he's claiming. In this moment when Jesus says, I am, all bets are off. They are picking up stones because this man has just publicly and blatantly blasphemed God, spoken against God, making it, saying that God would be here in, in him, that he is God. This is something that's punishable by death. And, and while modern readers and critics of the scriptures and critics of Trinitarian theology will go to great lengths to say Jesus never said he was God or he didn't mean that I am to be compared to the I am of the Old Testament. Isn't it interesting that in the day Jesus said it to the people who he said it to in the day Jesus said it to the people he said it to. They had no doubts about what he was claiming. They were ready to kill him in that very moment. There was no confusion, no wondering, well, is Jesus saying that he's really God and that God is Yahweh and this is all connected? I'm not so sure that he ever really claimed that. In that moment, they're like, oh my gosh, did you hear what he just said? And they're looking around for rocks to throw at him. You know, it is constantly a stumbling block for modern humanity when we are trying to interpret Jesus' words or scripture differently than they were understood in the day that they were originally communicated to people. I am is a code word. It was meant to be a code word. It was understood that way in that day. And despite what, I don't know, you know, the Jehovah's Witnesses will tell you, <laughs> that's how we're meant to understand it today. 
Jesus claimed to be the eternal preexistent one. And this crowd is up in arms about it. They cannot embrace this unseen reality that Jesus is claiming. They're blinded by their own commitment to being wise in their own eyes. They're blinded by their own fear of losing maybe the influence or the control or whatever they feel like they have possession of in society in that day. They're blinded by fear of losing it. They're blinded by their own shame over who they are. And they cannot see these unseen realities that Jesus is inviting them into, that the creator of the universe is before them, walking in the flesh, humbly in the flesh, serving people, healing people, doing good. They pick up the stones to kill him. To finish the passage, uh, John writes, Jesus hid himself and he slipped away from the temple ground. So good news, he didn't die that day. Um, But you know, today we have an invitation to respond differently to those things that Jesus has revealed to us. Those who believe in Jesus are promised a whole host of unseen realities. I was moved by uh, the, the scripture from the, the festival earlier in the book of John. He talks about, you know, to, the, to him who believes in me, rivers of living water will flow up from within him. And, and reminded this week of, of the portrait that's painted of the Garden of Eden at the beginning of creation. This garden that had four rivers flowing out of it that flowed into and watered and gave life to all the regions around it. Of course, when, uh, when we have a vision of heaven presented in different places in Scripture, there's a river coming from the throne of God that is giving life to everything around it. And you think about what Jesus said in that moment when he says, if anyone believes in me, in them is going to be a Garden of Eden type place. Rivers of living water flowing out of you, giving life to the world around you. That is an unseen reality. And yet if you can experience that in the depth of who you are, if this place inside of you can be the Garden of Eden where God and humanity dwell together in peace, man, that's everything, right? You're no longer worried about so many things that we're consumed with because there's a Garden of Eden inside of you. Can you imagine the impact that you have on the world when you're living out of the Garden of Eden inside of you? All of the things that we do to each other that wound each other, hurt one another out of our own selfishness, our own insecurity, or our own fear and shame, right? You imagine the difference in how we interact with the world when people encounter us and they, they encounter a drink of living water. There's that unseen reality. The other unseen reality is, is this whole idea that we will not taste death. That for the one who believes, if they can look past the fear of a mortal body perishing, that they can begin to see what a gift it is to finally be free from a broken and, and world that is perishing and, to be, and believing that there's something we move into that is eternal and everlasting. The challenge to us today is to live in, in, in that reality, that unseen reality that Christ presents to us. And, and, and will you choose to walk in a trusting relationship with Jesus today, believing that what he says is true and that you can live it and see it? Will you reach out your hand to take his hand of fellowship 
or will you reach out your hand to define good and evil for yourself? And this story has the potential to be repeated from the garden through the end of your life, right? And which story are you going to be telling? Uh, I had it in my mind to, uh, to do some discussion questions, but, um, but maybe instead of that, we'll still do groups, but I'd love to have the worship team come up. And uh, we, if, if you've never been to Renewal before or you haven't been here in a week, we've done discussion questions. We try to, most weeks, take some time to talk with one another, maybe about the sermon content, about your own lives. And, and part of that is because we really believe that, um, that one of the most valuable things that you can come away from church with is uh, a significant interaction with another brother or sister in the Lord that is encouraging your own spiritual walk. And, um, and then one of the things that we've been trying to do uh, a little bit more, kind of easing our way into it this year, is, is trying to get back into just praying for one another a little bit more often. And so um, as we turn to the Lord's table for communion, I would love it if, if we could just kind of break ourselves up into groups of, you know, I don't know, half a dozen or so, or whatever's convenient as you look around. And, um, and, and you know, if one or two people in the group could, could just pray a prayer over the group that we would be able to embrace some of these unseen realities this week, um, uh, I think that would be fantastic. Uh, if there's anyone in the group who maybe has a need that's on your heart for this week, you could maybe even share that. Uh, and that might be a good way to start if, if someone just says, hey, does anybody need prayer for anything specific this week? Uh, but we just want to practice a little bit praying for each other. We want to be a church who's going out into the community and, and praying for our coworkers, praying for our family members. Um, and, and so uh, we feel like if we can practice that a little bit in a safe space like this, where if you say the wrong words or, if, you know, you forget to say Jesus' name, amen, or, or something like that, like it's a... It's a forgiving space, you know, someone else will cover your back and it's all right. But this is a great place to practice those things. And so, um, and then if, and then I think in those groups, to then come up to the Lord's table together, tear off a piece of the bread and just receive it with thanksgiving. I feel like that would be a relationally rich way just to close our service. And so, Lord, we thank you that uh, you have paid it all. Uh, we thank you that, uh, that the tables that are here at the front of the room are set with the reality that you have paid it all. We thank you that, that generations before us, there were, there were human beings who saw that price paid with their own eyes. And we pray that, that your sacrifice and the reality of it would be as real to us today as, as it would be if we had seen it with our own eyes. We thank you that today those who saw it with their own eyes are somehow around us in an unseen realm as a cloud of witnesses. We thank you that the hearts of of um, of our ancestors in the faith are uh, hearts that have been transformed by your grace and, and we just believe that they are for us we thank you that you as a good father are for us and we're so grateful for the opportunity to just be a part of this beautiful relational fabric that is the family of God we thank you for the way that your family transcends generations transcends biological families transcends culture uh, and we thank you that that here in this room, we are all family together. As we take some time uh, just to pray over one another, as we take time to maybe minister to any needs that are here in the room, we invite your Holy Spirit to guide our dialogue, to guide our prayers, uh, to inspire us, to help us to speak uh, the words that heaven would speak to us today. 
And as we come to your table to eat and drink of your sacrifice, our hearts are just full of gratitude. We thank you so much, and we just praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.